0: Bring in show music, please.
1: Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Downgrade. Ratings agency Fitch drops the U.S. long-term credit rating. Market reaction and what this means for Bidenomics. Washington reporter Emily Wilkins.
2: This is just not going to be a good look for Biden and his team. Former President Trump indicted.
3: We're just in totally uncharted territory there
2: are
1: Eamon Javers on the stunning details.
3: The defendant told the vice president, quote, you're too honest.
1: And regulating the Wild West of cryptocurrencies, CFTC Chair, Rostin Bainham.
4: A huge portion, and I've argued up to 70% of the market, is largely unregulated because they constitute commodities.
1: Plus, all you can fly for one fee, Frontier Airlines CEO, Barry Biffle. All you can fly fall and winter is at $2.99. Is that right, Barry?
0: That's correct. That's correct. It's a great value. It's the best value in travel.
1: It is Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. Squawk Pod begins
5: right now.
3: Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please.
5: All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today. Yeah, believe it or not, it's the 2nd of August. Time is flying. The summer is flying by.
6: Let's talk about the downgrade because it is our top story. Fitch downgrading the U.S. rating, uh, citing what they're calling an erosion of governance. Emily Wilkins joins us now with more. Good morning to you.
2: Good morning, Andrew. Yes, well, some shocking news yesterday, at least for some of those in the Biden administration, seeing that downgrade in the U.S. credit rating from a triple A to AA+. This is only the second time that the U.S. credit rating has been downgraded like this, and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is quickly defending the Biden administration, saying that the data that Fitch is using uh, was outdated data. Uh, She called the numbers arbitrary, and it's not only Yellen who is really pushing back against these numbers. Other Democrats are also pointing the finger at former President Donald Trump and Republicans, saying that they are the ones to blame. Uh, Take a look at this statement from Richie Neal, top Democrat on the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, He said that the GOP is responsible for the downgrade and that the American people will be forced to bear the consequences from the debt crisis and tax cuts for the wealthy. Although if you look in Fitch's report, they've said that the recent debt ceiling crisis was really only the latest incident in dysfunctional government. They said there's been, quote, steady deterioration for 20 years in the U.S.'s government and other factors that contributed to the rating include rising deficits and the government's inability so far to deal with growing costs of Social Security and Medicare. Plus, there are continued recession fears. Andrew, we are expecting Secretary Yellen to be speaking a little bit later this morning on modernizing the IRS, and we will be following her remarks very closely.
6: So the question I'd have for you, and I don't know if anybody's gotten to the bottom of it, is just what was the timing, meaning what was it that really led uh, Fitch to do this now? And I think the reason why you're hearing Janet Yellen and others push back so hard on it is if you really do look at the model, I don't know if you had an opportunity to fully read it, Becky, and seen it. The model effectively. The economy
5: looks better at this point. The economy
6: yeah. looks better at this point and looks like it's on an even better trajectory than where they were call it three years ago. And so when people are pushing back saying this happened on the Trump administration or this happened on the Biden administration, the truth is if you look at the chart, it actually looks much worse as it was coming towards the end of the, at the end of the Trump administration, as you might expect, and then progressively gets better. Now, look, now Fitch, if I remember correctly, uh, put the U.S. on a, a negative ratings watch just a couple of months ago. And so the question is, what would have put them on a negative ratings watch a couple of months ago and got, you would have thought gotten worse over the last couple of months, not actually better?
2: Yeah, I mean this is a real big shock to the Biden administration because they said, hey, you know we solved the debt limit in a bipartisan way. Yeah, we got a little bit close, but we eventually did get it done. Uh, you've seen a number of other bipartisan bills come up. You've seen concerns about a uh, recession mostly go away at this point, and you've seen some really strong numbers. So I think the Biden administration is also asking a lot of questions about timing. And remember, too, this is happening as Biden and his cabinet officials are going across the country to tout Bidenomics, and so. This is just not going to be a good look for Biden and his team. Uh, this really kind of has a potential to put a really strong dent in their message that the economy is doing much better now than it was two years ago.
5: Look, there are more people who think we're in for a potential soft landing at this point. But Fitch is right in saying that this wasn't really resolved. You may have gotten past the debt ceiling crisis at this point, but we don't have a, a way to kind of get past the funding disagreements you're going to have that pick up over the next year. You don't have anything to deal with Social Security and other issues that have come up. So Fitch is right from that perspective.
2: Absolutely. I mean, we know that the debt limit, we're just going to have to deal with it again in 2025. There is absolutely a chance that we are headed towards a government shutdown at this point. And while we are able to, you know, get to these problems, figure out a solution and move on, they keep occurring. And I think that's what Fitch is trying to get at there, really pointing out that this isn't something that's happened in the last year or the last two years or the last four years. This is something that's been going on for the past 20 years where there has been this dysfunction in government. It crosses both both parties it crosses a number of years and you really can't p- pin the blame on any particular administration
6: Emily we want to thank you uh, Meantime, I want to get some reaction from market participants in a tweet Mohammed Alarian calls the move quote strange said he's puzzled by many aspects of the announcement and the timing and he is likely not the only one this goes to what that chart and model says and what Fitch seems to be saying separately Similar take from Goldman Sachs, telling clients the downgrade should have little direct impact on financial markets, as it is unlikely there are major holders of Treasury securities who would be forced to sell based on the ratings change.
5: And again, if you look at Treasuries this morning, yields are actually down, which right. means prices are up. More people have gone into Treasuries as a result of this, so not playing out immediately in the financial markets. So what for does sure.
6: this actually mean about Fitch, though? Fitch is a private company. Yeah. It's owned by Hearst. Yeah. These are people who make these decisions. Um, does it put pressure on the other rating agencies to downgrade do they say these guys over here don't Moody know what they're talking has about
5: triple-a which is its highest right. rating for for u.s. debt but i don't think there's a problem with raising questions about some of these things there, oh, there no, no, are no
6: no! no. Let, let's be a hundred percent yeah Honest about the situation, I think we all look at uh, the budgets of the United States and think that so many of it's so, so much of it's unsustainable, and, and, this and, and not, a
5: dysfunctional process for getting there. But, and I, never think the tr- but I think the, the truth is problems. that
6: if you look at the way ratings have been done, at least historically, it's what is a country on a, re- on a relative basis. It's, this is a relative business, meaning. How does this country compare to this country, compare to this country, compare to this country? And then you look at the timing and you look at their own model and you have to say to yourself, there's something a little weird here. It's not. Again, the issue of raising questions is one thing. The issue of why you would have not if you really were going to downgrade the country, you would have, according to their model, you would have done it three and a half years ago. You just would have. You wouldn't have done it now. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's the. The, I think the, the bigger and, question. And I,
5: th- I think the market reaction is telling of that, too. Again, right. this is not something that's scaring people out of buying U.S. Treasuries. The opposite is happening right. today.
6: Good evening. Today, an indictment was unsealed.
5: I want to get to another developing story. A grand jury in Washington, D.C., indicting former President Donald Trump on allegations of attempting to overturn the 2020 presidential election. That indictment unsealed late late yesterday. Former President Trump is expected in court tomorrow. Eamon Javers joins us right now with more on that. Eamon, good
3: morning. Hey, good morning, Becky. Special counsel Jack Smith made a brief statement yesterday explaining why he moved forward with this four-count indictment of the former president of the United
4: States. Here's what he said. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021 was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by
3: lies. Now, the 45-page indictment itself charges Trump with conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an official proceeding, and a conspiracy against rights, that is, people's voting rights in general in this country. Now, Jack Smith said he wants a speedy trial in the case, and we're getting a sense that things are moving fast. As you say, Becky, the former president has been summoned to appear in federal court on Thursday here in Washington, D.C. at 4 p.m., that is tomorrow, the Trump campaign issued a statement denouncing Smith uh, in the wake of all this, saying, this is nothing more than the latest corrupt chapter in the continued pathetic attempt by the Biden crime family and their weaponized Department of Justice to interfere with the 2024 presidential election. Now in the document filed late yesterday afternoon, we're learning more about the closed door communications between the former president and his former vice president, Mike Pence, who remember testified before this grand jury and took contemporaneous notes Of his conversations in real time with Donald Trump, in one exchange detailed in the document, Trump berated Pence because the vice president opposed an effort to establish that Pence had the authority to reject or return presidential votes. Here's what the document says about that moment. It says the vice president responded that he thought there was no constitutional basis for such authority and that it was improper. In response, the defendant told the vice president, quote, you're too honest. Now, in his remarks yesterday, Special Counsel Smith said that the men and women of law enforcement who defended the Capitol against violent attackers on January 6 are heroes, and they did more than defend the building or the people in it. They defended who we are as a country. Back over to you guys.
5: Amen, also Mike Pence yesterday coming out with his strongest statements yet against former President Trump, saying he, he doesn't think that, that Trump should ever be president again. Obviously, he said no man should be above the Constitution. Right. He is now running himself for president. But this is the strongest statement he's made to date.
3: Yeah. He said no man should be uh, above the Constitution, that anyone who puts himself there should be ineligible for the presidency, in effect. And it's this fascinating moment, Becky, where Mike Pence who rarely uh, stood askance of Donald Trump at all in any way during his entire vice presidency on the last day, in effect, of the vice presidency on January 6th, did stand against Donald Trump, uh, testified against him in this proceeding, and is now running against him. So there's this fascinating conflicts of interest here because Pence now running for president himself, Trump now running for president himself, Pence testifying against Trump, providing key evidence in the form of those notes uh, to Smith, the special counsel, uh, all of that happening against this backdrop of enormous constitutional stakes. Because there's some real question here about what would happen if Trump were to win in 2024 and then be overseeing the Department of Justice uh, that has gone through with this case. What would that mean for American jurisprudence and law enforcement? We're just in totally uncharted territory there, Becky.
5: Eamon, thank you. Eamon Jaffers.
3: You bet. Cheese will be next.
1: Coming up, Mining for crypto clarity. Chair of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, Rostam Bainham, on regulating finance amid new technology.
4: A lot of the cases we've brought, notwithstanding some of the bigger cases against more traditional crypto firms, are pump and dumps, Ponzi schemes, the same types of schemes and fraud that we've been seeing in financial markets for decades.
5: Like bucket shops.
4: Bucket, bucket shops. shops, and you know, it's just a different asset.
1: Squawk Pod will be right back. You're listening to Squawk Pod.
6: Up and Andrew, Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick. Joe is off today.
5: We have spoken to leaders in both the House and the Senate over the past several weeks about digital asset regulation. Our next guest says that he did not endorse the House-led efforts that uh, we've been talking about, but he has called the Senate's efforts, in his words, carefully and thoughtfully considered all components of the market. Joining us right now, he can tell us himself, is the CFTC chair, Russ Benham. And uh, Russ, welcome. It's good to see you.
4: Thanks, Becky. Good to see you, too.
5: There's a lot of confusion out there about where things stand. There's a recent court ruling that dug into XRP and basically said that these contracts, they're trading for retail at XRP, is not a security. Um, Gary Gensler has been pretty... Um, evasive when it comes to kind of getting nailed down on what he thinks about these things? Lay it out for us. Tell us where you think things stand based on what the court ruled, what the law says. At
7: this
4: point. I, you know, Becky, thanks. It's good to be with you guys. That the court decision, and there've been a few in the past couple weeks, really just, I think, validate what I've been saying for a couple years, that there needs to be action by Congress um, so that we can fill these gaps in, in the crypto space. And I've said as the chair of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, We've been bringing enforcement cases without clear authority over the, the space. And a huge portion, and I've argued up to 70% of the market, is largely unregulated because they constitute commodities. That's got to so, be
5: really frustrating as a regulator.
4: Well, it feels um, frustrating, certainly, but also we're, we're bringing these enforcement cases and we're bringing them because we're having people come to us and give us tips and complaints. So we're not using those traditional tools registration, surveillance, oversight so that we can clean up the market, that we can protect investors. My mission is to protect investors yeah. and to preserve the American financial system. And if I don't have those tools, I can't do that with this market.
5: Where, where do you think the biggest problems are, the biggest frauds, the biggest places where investors are getting fleeced?
4: You know, believe it or not, a lot of the cases we've brought, notwithstanding some of the bigger cases against more traditional uh... crypto firms are pump and dumps ponzi schemes the same types of schemes and fraud that we've been seeing in financial markets for decades like bucket Um, shops bucket shops. shops and you know it's just a different asset whether it was fx or whether it was metals or traditional you know securities now this is an easy asset class which is speculative people get a little bit of fervor they think they can make a quick buck and you get a pitch and you know you put some money into it, maybe you put a little bit more money into it. So that's what we've been seeing for the better part of a decade. And what frustrates me, and I've said this to Congress before, is with this limited tool we have, we're probably dealing with the tip of the iceberg. There's probably so much fraud underlying what we've been able to expose. And to, you know that, that's a problem because you have American investors, pensioners, retirees, and folks just thinking that this is gonna be a, a, a quick buck. And, in fact, they're going to end up losing their
5: money. I mean, not to mention that bad guys and criminals go where where there's a vacuum, where there's a void. Sure. Right? Like they're, they're looking at this because, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, you can't catch us type yeah. of mentality. And you know,
4: we're seeing the development of this. There's been a little bit of jurisprudence about what tokens are commodities and securities. Obviously, Bitcoin pretty clearly a, a commodity. But you're starting to see some more sophisticated financial institutions draw those lines and list tokens which probably clearly fall in the non-security or commodity space. And to your point, that becomes a regulatory vacuum. They can play in that space knowing that no market regulator or bank regulator can touch them.
6: Can I just ask you one of the reasons I think that regulators and, and Congress and others have been loath to actually deal with crypto in a meaningful way is because fundamentally underneath it all, it is supposed to be uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. And so what is the Benefit of effectively blessing something that you actually really can't control? And is it a smokescreen to say, I'm going to control this thing over here, and yet what's happening over here outside of the United States and other places, I cannot control at all? Which, by the way, may have a huge impact ultimately on the valuation of what you're seeing right here. Yeah,
4: so I'll answer that in two parts. The latter first. This discussion about domestic versus international, we deal with it in all financial markets, right? We dealt with it after the financial crisis. You need comparability, you need harmonization across jurisdictions. Otherwise you're gonna find races to the bottom in sort of low regulatory jurisdictions and environments. I've been chair for two and a half years. The conversation two and a half years ago was focused on smaller island jurisdictions moving forward with a regulatory framework, now we have the UK, the EU, and Hong Kong, Singapore actually having crypto regulation. We need to move forward, and Andrew, I think this goes to your first point, is I'm a market regulator. I've been seeing this market develop and evolve, ebb and flow over the past three, four, five years, up to $3 trillion, down to less than a trillion, now floating just above a trillion. The fact of the matter is you have institutionals, investors, you have retail investors participating in this market. And I can't step back because of this fear of validation. I can't step back because what is the technology going to be in the future and what impact will it have on our economy and our country? Those are not the questions I ask. I have to ask what is my mission, what's my responsibility? And as long as I bring enforcement actions, even one investor, one investor, that's all that matters. I have to protect him or her in this country because there's schemes, there's frauds, and there's bad stuff going on.
5: Can you just tell us why it's taking Congress so long to, to get to any sort of solution on this, even in the wake of these huge frauds and schemes like FTX coming down, all of these people? I mean, there are people losing a ton of money on yeah, some of these
4: I, things. Yeah, What, what the heck ho- is going on? One would hope, and I think historically we, we tend to see legislation and policy res- uh, come after crises, 2008 to, to say the least. Um, I think there's, and I've had a lot of conversations with members of Congress in both the House and the Senate side, and there's just a lot of, um, there are a lot of differences in points of view about what this technology will be, what its impact will, ha- uh, will be on our economy and financial markets potentially, and ultimately, given all of this fraud, there's a viewpoint of let's just make this go away and let's squeeze it out of the country versus let's endorse this, let's create innovation, let's support that. I try to balance myself in the middle, saying we have to focus on markets and customer protections. What happens afterwards? Well, so, but isn't there a little bit of
6: an Uber effect to all of this, which is to say, I mean, not the current Uber, but when Uber first started, it started showing up in cities around the country.
5: The move fast and break things. Yeah, there was no
6: real regulation at all, and dare I say, they forced the issue, Mm -hmm. right? There there was a, you know could you get to escape velocity to the point where people would actually have to deal with you rather than actually try to kill you? Yeah. Isn't that what's happened here? And then the question is, if that is what's happened here, is there, should we be incentivizing that or not?
4: Well, I, I think I, I don't view that necessarily um, as the MO or the, the, the strategy for all of the businesses. Perhaps there's a few out there that seem to want to force themselves into the landscape and the ecosystem.
6: Isn't that what's happened with crypto?
4: Um, not necessarily. There's some good actors. They're a number. I, you talk to the
6: crypto participants. Oh, by the way, I'm they not saying, saying they're bad actors. I'm just saying they've, they've developed they've something. They've complied. So
4: there's. You talk to some of the largest institutions, which have been, I know, on, right. on the show, and you tell them you're not subject to any regulation. They'll be like, "What are you talking about? We have to comply with right. 50 states to participate." Right. And and there are obviously mon- money transmitter requirements, but it's not the federal imprateur of the market scheme, but they're trying to get regulated. They
6: see this as a, a validation right. of the technology. But, but, but here's, the, here's the validation issue. What happens if you validate it? You bless this, yeah. okay? And then something truly terrible happens yeah. with crypto outside of the United States and some other place, and you know, mom, pop, and everybody else loses their home and does, and, and, and horrific things happen. That's the uh, that's the other side of this coin, and I don't I don't know what the right answer is, by the way.
4: So so, I mean, the inverse to that is let's just the inverse is that people make a fortune
6: and you don't do anything, right? Well,
4: people are still going to get hurt. I mean, my my enforcement record for the past decade has proven that people are getting hurt, and they continue. Twenty percent of my enforcement cases last year, twenty percent, more than twenty percent, were crypto related. That's a huge number for a financial regulator to have twenty plus. Percent of its enforcement record in an unregulated market. I can't, the retail FX market, right. in my, my mind, is a perfect analogy. Totally unregulated, 2008, Congress takes action. A little bit of this friction and question about do we validate retail FX? Why do you have retail participants in the FX market? We cleaned it up, a lot of the scams and the fraud went away. It exists, and that's it. I don't think we have this market infrastructure, we have this regulatory infrastructure let's use it. Right. Whether or not the technology evolves or takes off, we have to protect people. And if we just step back and say, let's just have this has happened, the same scenario that you just drew up will continue to happen. So let's at least shed some light. Let's bring some transparency. Let's protect people. And let's use these tools that have worked for decades for American financial system. And that made our, our financial system the best in the world.
5: Chairman Benham, thanks for coming in.
4: Thanks. Good to see you guys. Good to see you.
5: Next on Squawk Pod.
1: Pack have- your bags. One airline is offering all you can fly for a flat fee. Frontier CEO Barry Biffle explains his pitch to travelers in the trip trends of 23.
0: Over 90% of our customers plan to travel the same or more uh, than before on a go-forward basis, and actually half of them are planning to travel even more. With only 7% planning to travel less, so so the demand is there and growing versus you know 2019 2022 even uh, but the challenge is in the near term they, they went to europe this summer
1: our frontier interview takes off right after this this is squawk pod today with becky quick and andrew ross sorkin here's andrew
6: frontier airlines rising in the pre-market this after the company beat second quarter profit expectations narrowly beat on the top line, I want to get straight over to Phil LeBeau right now because he's got a very special guest this morning. Phil.
7: Thank you, Andrew. Let's bring in Barry Biffle, CEO of Frontier Airlines, joining us from Denver today. Um, Barry, Andrew, set this up. You beat the street in the second quarter, but your guidance for the third quarter and the second half of this year, uh, coming in below what analysts were expecting. Paint a picture of what you see as far as the landscape over the next six months uh, for uh, Frontier.
0: Sure. Thanks for having us, Phil. And um, things have changed a little bit, I think uh, versus you know just a few months ago. I mean we have surveyed our customers and we've got a five point movement in in our just in the frontier customer base that is actually traveling to Europe on a year-over-year year basis. and that's causing some pressure and some moderation in fares in the domestic environment. And I think it's just you're seeing last year was maybe the year for domestic and this year is the, the year for international. And so we'll see that pin up demand kind of rotate back, especially by the time you get to winter. Uh, you're going to see people going more to the Florida and the Caribbean than going to the Apple Tower once we get to February. So that's caused some near-term pressure. Uh, in our case, uh, we put out a guide of 4 to 7%. We were disappointed that number should be double-digit, but three points of it is simply the shift to Europe. And we've got another three points uh, d- contributed to the air traffic control challenges that we're seeing uh, related to the weather events. So so until we can kind of get through those and and kind of and kinda kinda get past that and these temporary challenges, it's going to pressure the near-term.
7: So, Barry, let me be clear here, because there's been a lot of hand-wringing by investors who are wondering, has domestic demand for travel peaked, or have we seen a peak in terms of airfares? You don't believe that's the case. You believe there's going to be a rotation back, correct?
0: Well, we were curious ourselves. And look, we, we hear these same same concerns, and so we, we just went out and, and, and surveyed our customers, and uh, we found the European information, but we also found something else that's very interesting. So over 90% of our customers plan to travel the same or more. Uh, than before on a go-forward basis, and actually half of them are planning to travel even more, with only seven percent planning to travel less. So, so the demand is there and growing uh, versus you know 2019, 2022 even. Uh, but the challenge is in the near term. They they went to Europe this summer.
7: You know, for you guys, ancillary revenue is a big deal. It averaged about eighty dollars per customer in the second quarter, flat with the first quarter. You've targeted getting it up to eighty-five dollars. How do you raise that? Or do you notice that as the economy has had some bumps along the way over the last six months, people are a little, maybe a little more cost conscious when it comes to some of the add-ons when it, uh, that are part of ancillary revenue for you guys?
0: Well, look, I mean, what's great about our model is, is people want to save money. They can actually choose to to have less options. You know, in some cases, if you're fully bundled, you don't have that option. You you have to pay the full price. Um, so look, sure, there could be some pressure if there's if there's some financial concerns. Uh, but the reality is, we have a very robust pipeline. Um, we have years uh, in the making uh, to, to continue to increase that. In fact, our long-term target remains $100. So, so we have a lot of things coming out. Um, we. Continue to innovate on our go wild Pass. We just launched our monthly product uh, for that as well. So there's plenty of things in the tank that we have to continue to grow it. Uh, But, yes, it it could be challenged if if we continue to see some drag uh, in the momentum of domestic pricing.
7: Barry, about a year ago, I went back and I looked at the tape. It was about a year ago that you guys ended your bid to buy Spirit uh airlines and now you see what's happened in the last year between spirit and JetBlue. you see that the doj is fighting them you see that it may not come through i know you wanted the deal to go through but is there a part of you that says we avoided a lot of headaches there and and maybe in hindsight all things worked out best for us
0: well i get a headache just thinking about uh, that that experience uh, thank you for reminding me it's been a year um look i i i, I think that uh the process is going forward, um, and, and I think their trial is in October. Um, I, I'm actually encouraged uh, that they actually can get this thing through. I, I know in the past I, I didn't actually believe that, um, but it looks like it, it, it very well could. And I think when you look at the power of the big four and what they exert on the marketplace, I think you know there's a real opportunity here uh, to, to have another carrier that, that, that can compete with them. Um, but uh, we will see what happens. Uh, it is... Uh, Yes, it, it is very challenging right now. There's a lot of talk about it. And, and uh, the government is, is putting up a tough fight.
7: Hey, Barry, we have to wrap up the interview, but I know that Becky's always interested in the go wild pass. How many people are you having uh, taking advantage of that?
0: We haven't disclosed it, but uh, it's, it, it has exceeded our expectations uh, multiple times, and we continue to innovate. We have the annual product, we have the, we have the seasonal, we have the summer seasonal, and we have a fall and winter seasonal, and we also now introduced a monthly. So, so we kind of have whatever you're looking for. You can even try it out now uh, with the monthly before you commit to an annual pass. So, uh, hopefully, Becky's gotten her. All you can fly,
5: two ninety nine. No, right? I'm sure Becky loves the
7: all you can fly option.
5: All you can fly fall and winter is at two ninety nine. Is that right, Barry?
0: That's correct. That's correct. It's a great value. It's the best value in travel.
5: Especially if you don't have a job and you can be on the road or a student (laughs) maybe going around.
0: Yeah, if you work from home or students or students, I mean, anyone with a little bit of flexibility of retirees, it's a great product.
5: It is the all you can eat buffet. Uh,
7: Absolutely. Hey, Barry, thank you very much for joining us this morning. We uh, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, uh, Barry Biffle, the CEO of Frontier Airlines. Becky, I'll send it back to you.
5: I'm going to do that one of these days.
6: Right. What's that?
5: Get an all-you-can-fly pass.
6: I just watched an interview with a guy who, for $510,000, bought an all-you-can-fly pass for life. For life? On United, he must have done this 20-some-odd years ago, or more, and he's flown 23 million miles.
5: <laughs> can, can they block you out? Or no, is it it's
6: first class for life, forever.
5: That's kind of amazing.
6: If you do the math, but you, you do have to amortize if fly
5: it. If a
1: that is Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. We appreciate every one of you, and we love presenting you with the very best of CNBC's coverage every day. Our work would not be possible without your support. So please help us help you take a second right now. Click that follow button wherever you're listening. And if you're listening on Apple podcasts, give us a rating while you're at it. Those two things really do help other listeners discover Squawk Pod. And you can share any of our episodes at any time on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, LinkedIn, your personal newsletter, whatever. Help us spread the word squawk box is hosted by joe kernan becky quick and andrew ross sorkin they're in every morning on cnbc 6 to 9 a.m and so are we right here on squawk pod we'll meet you back here tomorrow
3: we are clear thanks guys